Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 45 for the fourth quarter of July 2012. The topic I'm going to talk about today is the Moon's recession rate from Earth and the related young Earth creationist argument that the Moon's recession rate proves a 6,000-year-old universe. It is a fact that Earth's moon is, today, moving away from Earth at a rate of about 3.82 plus or minus 0.07 centimeters per year, as measured by the Apollo Lunar Laser Ranging Experiment over the past 40 years. That means that since the end of the Apollo era, astronauts would need to travel, on average, about 1.6 meters farther to get there. Young Earth creationists will use this value to say that, since the moon today is about 384,400 kilometers from Earth, then if you trace the current recession rate back, it would have had to sprung from the planet like Athena from Zeus's head only 10 million years ago, although Christian creationists are unlikely to use Greek mythology. That is, of course, the naive approach. If you actually use differential equations to do this more accurately, such as the astronomer-slash-physicist-slash-young-earth-creationist Donald DeYoung did in the mid-to-late-80s and early-90s, then they claim that it would have been about 1.4 billion years ago that the Moon and Earth would have been touching. Obviously, the case is then made. This means that Earth and the Moon can't possibly be 4.5 billion years old, even though the evolutionists say that it is. Therefore, God created everything 6,000 years ago. Now, this is another case, much like in episode 43, where the explanation of background information shows the fallacy of this claim. To jump to the final answer, the recession rate was slower in the past. Why, and the evidence for this, is the remainder of this episode's main segment. For the claim, creationists rely upon the idea that everything is now as it was then, as in, they adopt a uniformitarian outlook, even though they normally use catastrophism and mock normal scientists for using uniformitarian approaches. Anyway, what I mean by this is that they assume that the day has always been 24 hours. In fact, much argument is made that God created the Earth in six literal 24-hour days. They also assume that the moon's recession rate can be modeled by a simple differential equation that takes the rate today, along with basic laws of gravity, and works the rate backwards through time. Geologists, physicists, astronomers, and other scientists say otherwise. They say that the day has been different in the past, and that the moon's recession rate is more variable through time. If I can provide evidence that the moon's recession rate was different in the past, which I will, then that would be evidence against the creationist claim. First, I'm going to take a theoretical approach. The moon is moving away from Earth today because it's being pulled forward in its orbit, gaining energy from Earth's own rotation, and so it's moving to a higher orbit. The mechanism is tides. Earth's tidal bulge is ahead of the moon. If you draw a circle in the center of a piece of paper for Earth, and you draw a circle above it for the moon, then draw a larger circle to represent the moon's orbit around Earth, you'll start to see what I'm talking about. If you draw an arrow pointing along the orbit counterclockwise, then that will show the moon's revolution about the planet. 
If you draw a straight line between Earth and the Moon, the bulge on Earth caused by the Moon's tides would be ahead of that line in the Moon's orbit. That extra gravity from the tidal bulge pulls the Moon along, and so it adds energy to the Moon's orbit at a cost of Earth's own rotational speed. So our day is actually slowing down as the Moon moves farther away, although it's by a very tiny amount. So that's the basic idea here with the theory. Tides are directly proportional to how fast the Moon moves away. If my explanation was in any way confusing, and I know it was, I've linked up to a Talk Origins article that explains it in much more detail. But because of the more detail, it's easier to understand, but it takes longer to read. Now, change the distribution of the continents. The tides are going to change. This means that the amount of energy that gets added to the moon's orbit to let it go into a higher orbit will change, which means that the recession rate must have changed as well. That is, of course, assuming that continental drift is correct, which many young Earth creationists don't believe. I should also mention before leaving the theoretical part of this discussion that I have glossed over a lot of details. Enough details to fill over 400 years of physics history, dating all the way back to Newton's theory of tides. Suffice to say, a simple mathematical and a simple physical situation, this is not. But, to first order, it can be explained as a simple physical system. Now, there's the question of, is there any evidence for this? What could evidence be that the tides were different in the past, or that the lunar recession rate was different in the past? One slightly hand-wavy answer is to get at the recession rate indirectly and look at the length of the day. If the day was faster, or it lasted a shorter amount of time, then the water level for any given tide would have been different because there wasn't enough time for the tidal bulge to get as high as it would otherwise be. This, in addition to changing the continent layout, combines to give less of a tidal effect and hence have a slower recession rate. So, what's the evidence that the day was shorter? One of the best is to look at ancient corals. Coral skeletons produce both daily and yearly patterns, and so the skeletons can be used to count how many days per year there were in the past. This is a pretty direct measurement, and work done in the 1970s shows that fossil corals from about 180 to 400 million years ago grew in years that had roughly 381 to 410 days. That's how many days there were per year, meaning that an individual day was faster, only around 22 and a half hours long. Similarly, the growth of mollusks and stromatolites show the same results, as do sediment deposition patterns. All of these are measurements that we can make, and obviously have been made, to show how long the day used to be millions and hundreds of millions of years ago. If you take an average overall, then you can see that Earth's rotation has been slowing by roughly 2 seconds every 100,000 years, or about 2 milliseconds every century. Note that this is a nonlinear process, though. But it is an average for at least the last 650 million years. So Earth's rotation has been slowing, meaning that tidal bulges would have been smaller. The continents also have been rearranged, which results in different tides as well. Computer modeling shows that in previous arrangements such as Pangaea, which was a configuration around 300 million years ago, the tides would have been smaller. 
we can also directly measure what are called tidal rhythmites, also known as tidally laminated sediments. These are laid down due to tides, as their name suggests. A study in 1990 showed that about 650 million years ago, the lunar recession rate was 1.95 plus or minus 0.29 centimeters per year, or about two-thirds of what it is today. The same study showed that from about 650 million to 2.5 billion years ago, the rate was about 1.27 centimeters per year, or less than about a third of what it is today. The same researcher reanalyzed his data in 1997 and calculated a value of 2.16 centimeters per year, on average, between now and about 650 million years ago. So if you accept these results from the rhythmites, even if you're a young Earth creationist, then you need to somehow explain why the recession rate was slower just a few thousand years ago, uh, I say a few thousand because they compress geologic time, than it is now, when the basic differential equation that creationists used shows that the lunar recession rate should have been faster. You also have to explain why the day was different when most young Earth creationists will argue for a literal 24-hour day at creation. Don't believe the corals nor the rhythmites? What about ancient Babylonian records? The ancient Babylonians recorded on what we would now say was April 15, 136 BC, a solar eclipse. In fact, it was the only solar eclipse the Babylonians recorded. The problem is, if you run the clock backwards, assuming the day as it is now, the eclipse should have passed through Europe, about 2,500 miles, or somewhere around 4,000 kilometers, or about 47 degrees on Earth, away from Babylon. Meanwhile, if you calculate how much Earth's rotation rate should have slowed, if you assume a constant tidal force that we get now, then the eclipse should have been about 22 degrees off, but in the other direction. That means that we have historical records that do show A, Earth's rotation rate has been changing, and B, it hasn't been at a linear rate, meaning that the Moon's recession rate also has not been constant at least over the last 2,148 years or so. Now getting back to the main issue at hand, what does this all mean? Again, it means that we have written records to prove Earth's rotation rate is slowing. We also have fossil and geologic evidence that Earth's days have lengthened. This means a changing tidal bulge, which means a changing tidal force on the Moon. A lessening tidal force means that the Moon's recession rate has increased in the geologically recent past, that it is not constant, and its change is different from the differential equations that it should otherwise follow. This means that the calculations done by the young Earth creationists do not model reality, and so they cannot be used to show that the Moon has to be less than 1.4 billion years old. Therefore, this line of alleged evidence that creationists use is not valid. But despite all this, they still make the claim. Just four years ago, Jason Lyle, while at the Answers in Genesis, quote-unquote, research center, but he's now at the Institute for Creation Research, wrote, quote, Secular astronomers must invoke other explanations. 
For example, they must assume that the rate at which the moon was receding was actually smaller in the past, for whatever reason. But this is an extra assumption needed to make their billions-of-years model work. End quote. Similarly, Brian Thomas of the Institute for Creation Research wrote just last month, quote, To explain the moon recession problem, it would have been touching the Earth and making life impossible at only a fraction of Earth's supposed billions of years. Many suggest, with no evidence, to back the claim that the moon's current drift rate away from Earth is abnormally fast these days. End quote. Sorry guys, we didn't just make this stuff up. There are many lines of independent evidence that converge to show that the moon's recession rate today, away from Earth, is faster than it has been in the past. No new news for this episode, so we'll go straight to Q&A, where the question comes from Kwisach Hadarach, a.k.a. Fibo, from the SGU message boards and apparently a Dune fan, who asks, There is a bit of an old episode of QI that has been bothering me for years. In it, Stephen Fry claims that the Earth has a second moon, called Kruithni. A few years later, he claimed that there are actually like 8 or 11 or 13 or something similar moons. What is the deal with Kruithni and other similar objects? The short answer to Phoebe's question is that Stephen Fry is wrong. The longer explanation has to start with the definition of a moon, which would be an object, probably a natural object, that orbits a planet or an asteroid, or I suppose a comet. Since Phobos and Deimos, for example, orbit Mars, as in Mars is at one of the two foci of the ellipse that defines their orbits, then Phobos and Deimos are moons of Mars. Kruithni orbits the Sun. The Sun is at one focus of its ellipse, and Earth is not at the other. Kruithni's orbit takes it closer to the Sun than Mercury, and farther from the Sun than Mars. Kruithni does, however, have a one-to-one orbital resonance with Earth, meaning that for every one orbit of Earth around the Sun, Kruithni orbits once as well. This kind of resonance is almost certainly caused by Earth perturbing it over the years, but that doesn't mean that it's in orbit around Earth. This is actually much like Pluto and its relationship with Neptune. Pluto is in a 2-3 to resonance with Neptune, not meaning that Pluto is actually a moon of Neptune, but meaning that for every three times that Neptune orbits the Sun, Pluto orbits the Sun twice. The same goes for all of these other objects that Stephen Fry might be referring to. They're sometimes called quasi-satellites, but they're definitely incorrectly referred to as moons. So that wraps up this Q&A segment. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available, although the easiest is probably just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. I'm very slowly catching up on email and other feedback, so I'm going to start with the most recent and work my way backwards for future episodes. Related to last episode's topic on independent evidence that we went to the moon, I got a lot of people sending me even more independent lines of evidence that we went to the moon. Specifically, Phil Kay, the person that goes by the handle of Gone to Plaid, that I assume is a Spaceballs reference, sent me several mechanisms apiece. Among the other ways to show that we went to the moon include, one, 
satellite versus Apollo shots of clouds at the time of the Apollo missions, 2. 3D anaglyphs from pairs of Apollo photos showing that it wasn't a set, and it had to be miles upon miles of size wide. 3. Hours of rover traverse footage, meaning that, again, any sets would have to be miles across, but the sun couldn't have changed due to the moon's slower rotation rate. You'd sort of have to have a many-mile-sized studio. 4. Every detail possible observed from Apollo that can be seen by the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter is actually observed by the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. So those are just a few of the additional, besides the other four that I mentioned during the episode, ways to show that we did really go to the moon. Moving on, it's time for the puzzler, where I attempt to ask a critical thinking question based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment, sometimes. The scenario in episode 43 was this. One of the pervasive Planet X claims is that it's coming at us from behind the sun. This has been claimed for several years. Is it possible for this to still be true? A Planet X coming at us from behind the sun for several years, always just next to it and showing up in a fuzzy photo on YouTube or a video on Flickr. And I do realize I have those reversed. Why or why not? Congratulations goes to Jan, who via email sent in the first correct answer, with an honorable mention going to Warwick, and I hope that I pronounced his name correctly this time. The solution is no. Earth moves through space around the sun. Only an object in an orbit directly opposite Earth, which is unstable, would not be visible from Earth over the course of a year, let alone the last decade that this claim has been around. The orbital dynamics work such that if a planet X just became visible when it was behind the sun, as seen from Earth, it would still be approaching the sun from the same direction, and Earth would eventually get around the sun and we'd see it, really much like a comet. In fact, my explanation in this episode's Q&A covers this idea as well. If a planet X were locked with Earth in a one-to-one resonance, so that one may naively think that it would always appear near the sun, it wouldn't it would move, just like Carithne moves in Earth's sky. So, Planet X people who make this claim cannot have it both ways. Either their photo or video of Planet X is real, and none of the others that have been around for years are real, or it's another lens flare, or dust, or whatever. The scenario in episode 44 was this. An oft-repeated claim until 2009 was... Why don't you just point Hubble at the moon and photograph the landings? Since NASA hasn't, it's proof that they aren't there. First, what kind of fallacy is that? Second, the answer to the question is that optical telescopes from Earth were and are incapable of the resolution needed to photograph any relics from Apollo. But is the resolution of any other Earth-based telescope or array in any wavelength able to image any of the Apollo relics. Please show your math. Congratulations goes to Chu for being the first to send in a correct partial answer via the SGU message boards, and a very honorable mention goes to Warwick for being just a day behind, but also with a correct partial but more complete answer. The solution to the first part, the logical fallacy, I agree with both Chu and Warwick, who sent in different fallacies. Chu's was an enthymeme, where you have an unstated assumption that must be true for the premises to lead to the conclusion. In this case, 
The unstated assumption was that Hubble could view the sites. It could resolve them. The premise was that it hadn't, and so the conclusion was, therefore, the sites don't exist. Warwick suggested argument from silence, which I think is the main one here. The argument from silence, or argumentum e silencio, or silentio, I don't speak Latin, is when a conclusion is drawn based on the absence of evidence rather than the existence of any evidence. I think that this is effectively the same as the more commonly stated absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Now for the second part of the solution, we go to trigonometry and basic optical theory. You need two equations. The first gives you the angle of an object based on its size and the distance to it, which is grade school trigonometry. The second equation is the diffraction limit of an optical system, which is what I was thinking of when I said this might be a Googleable answer. Both Chu and Warwick correctly calculated that in optical light, including the entire range of Hubble, which goes from near UV to near IR, the smallest object that Hubble could resolve is still several times larger than any size of the Apollo relics. Same goes for the largest optical telescopes on Earth, which I will re-emphasize the question was about Earth-based telescopes. What I was really going for with this puzzler, and what no one explicitly sent in except a bit for Warwick at the end, which is why I said that these were partial solutions, was to look at other telescopes on Earth that operate in other wavelengths of light to see what they could do. None of them can resolve Apollo, but I thought that it would be an interesting exercise. For example, the Very Large Array can get up to 36 kilometers in size, but it operates at radio bands, where the smallest wavelength would only let you resolve something about 200 meters across on the moon. The James Webb Space Telescope, which hasn't actually been built and also wouldn't be on Earth, would have a mirror that's about 6.5 meters in diameter and operate at infrared wavelengths. It will only be able to resolve objects up to about 110 meters across. GALAX, an ultraviolet space telescope, has a mirror half a meter across and again could only resolve features about 250 meters in size on the moon. This also assumes that the relics, of course, would reflect light at these wavelengths, which they wouldn't really do in radio. A flag isn't really visible to radar, nor is it really visible to gamma rays. If we ignore that and talk about theory, if the two Keck telescopes on Mauna Kea could be operated as an interferometer, then they would easily be able to resolve the landing sites. Similarly, the very long baseline interferometry method of connecting numerous radio telescopes across the entire planet would also be able to image the Apollo sites if the Apollo sites actually reflected or emitted something special in radio waves, which they don't. So, the conclusion is no. Now, going back a few more episodes, Carl Mamer needed me to correct an omission and state that he was one of the people who sent in a fairly correct answer to the whole, which would cause a bigger crater comet or asteroid puzzler that I asked about a month ago. Now, for this episode, there is no puzzler. The next episode, my anniversary episode, will be about the long-requested and long-awaited Emanuel Velikovsky. So if you have any ideas for a puzzler topic on him or his ideas, please send them in. By way of announcements, some of you may have noticed that for around 8 hours a day or two ago, a video showed up in the RSS feed only to have now disappeared, and now reappeared. 
The video is an expose that I created that looks into the latest claim by Richard C. Hoagland about a ziggurat that he supposedly discovered on the moon, basically showing that he fell for an old hoax. The reason that it went down is that I decided that there were three major changes, well, major minor changes, that I wanted to make. If you downloaded it before about 12 a.m. GMT going into Wednesday, July 25th, then you should delete the old version and get the new version. First, I should mention that if you've seen my YouTube version of this video, already four small changes had been made between it and the one released to the podcast. First, I added a bit more typewriter text when Hoagland is talking at the beginning. Second, I fixed a stray frame during a transition. And third, I added a caption with the coordinates of the feature. Fourth, I added a shadow behind the text of the Disclosed TV link at the end, showing that this is at least from 2011. I'm releasing an even newer version to the podcast feed that has a few minor changes to the audio. First, I removed YouTube compression and replaced it with video compression. And second, I corrected what I said about shadows being pitch black. A third change that I added is the latest images by the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter craft showing the region in question. Why am I going into bloody detail about these changes rather than just saying, Hey folks, a new bonus video has been put out showing Hoagland fooled by a bad Photoshop job. It's because I can just hear the conspiracy theorists now chomping at the bit saying that I changed the video because Big Astronomy or NASA or Big Gov or some such other big thing came down on me and made me do it. Well, no, that's not the case. It's because I made and released a video within the space of four hours and should never do that again. I need to sleep on it at least one night in order to contemplate the changes that I might want to make from the first version. Anyway, as my first video ever released related to this podcast, please send me feedback on it. I'm curious as to what you think worked, what didn't work, etc., etc., and whether these may be worth doing in the future. Just these four and a half, or now five and a half minutes, took a long time to make, so I don't want to do it if you don't think it's worth it. A second, much quicker announcement, is that I've finally added a tree of episode topics to the podcast website that offers an organized list of episodes by topic, such as everything creationism that I've done, or Hoagland, or Apollo. I've been meaning to do it for a while, I just never had the time. And finally, please don't believe any of the weird stories that might be circulating about me at TAM. Believe everything good, don't believe anything bad, or weird. So at this point, that wraps up the 45th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have feedback, you know the drill. There are a gajillion ways to get back to me. I'll just mention now that the easiest is probably to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. I do read every email, even if I haven't had time to respond, and I do appreciate the feedback. If you have any suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, even if you don't have completely positive glowing reviews. If you liked it, also tell your friends and family.